with soldiers under me. I tell, I, I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servants, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the man who has been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. The centurion heard. The centurion heard. And we need to understand that faith comes by what? It comes by the hearing. And we need to understand. Is on not still not getting it? Okay. We'll go without it. I don't know if I'm unplugged over there, but we'll have to just check it out later then. And the whole process is that he heard. How many of you really hear the gospel? How many of you really hear the message of the Lord Jesus Christ? How many of you really hear it? And it says the centurion heard it. When you hear, you have to be willing to do something. And that is to listen. If you're not willing to listen, you're hearing a noise, but then you're not really hearing And the whole process is for you and I to teach ourselves to listen. Not just hear the noise, but to listen. Go to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1 with me real real quick. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. You You know something? You need to guard your steps when you come into God's house. Sometimes you need to guard who you sit by. Why? Because that person will disturb you while you're trying to what? Listen to what? To the message. While you're trying to hear God's word, you'll have somebody always nudging on you or or asking this question or doing this or doing that. They are a disturbance or a distraction to you hearing the word of God. And he says, you need to uh, guard your steps. You need to guard who you might sit by. You need to guard what's around you. You need to really take hold if something's grabbing your attention other than the word of God. And he says, when you go to the house of God, go near to listen. What are you going for? To listen. You're going to go to gain instructions. You're going to go to learn how I live out this Christian life. I'm going to go learn how I put my faith together that I can live through faith and walk by faith and not by my sight. I'm learning how to live before a holy, righteous God. And I want to listen to that. I want to hear that. I want to absorb that. And he says, when you go into the house of God, You need to be all so careful. People don't think Satan don't come to church. Satan comes to church. 
Understand this, those who want to be in here will be in here. Those who don't want to be in here and really learn, they won't be in here. But people who hunger for God's word, they want to be right under it. They want to be just like Martha Mary. They want to be sitting at the feet of Jesus. They want to absorb it. And he, this man, he heard. Now, how did he hear? He heard by people talking. Whether it be in the barbershop, the grocery store, around the dinner table, among friends, wherever it's at. He heard about Jesus. And in Romans 5, 17, what does it tell us? Faith cometh by what? By hearing. So you're talking about Jesus. Whether you're on the bus sitting, you're talking about Jesus. Or you're reading about Jesus. And you may be reading a little bit with a little voice in there and so forth. And other people around you may be hearing it. You're, you're talking on your job about Jesus. People are hearing or you're reading during your break time. And you may be reading just not to be shouting, but you're reading where maybe other people may hear you. They're hearing the word of God. And the process faith comes by hearing. And somehow by the miracles that Jesus have done and by the things that Jesus have done, people are talking about it. And this satyrian, he's out in the crowd. He's out there doing his job as a soldier and so forth. So he's hearing these things of Jesus. The second way is simply this. I learn a lot of things that I learn by reading the newspaper. I learn a lot of things I learn by reading Time, U.S. News, different things in that manner. That's how I learned. Dr. Lugerson used to read five papers a day, and he tried to get all of our students, all of his students, to at least read two to three papers per day or different articles about what's happening in the world. Because that's how you keep up with what's going on in the world, by your reading, absorbing, because you're not going to hear everything. But the thing is, if you're a reader and you're reading about your country or you're reading about the economical issue of your country, if you're reading about things that's happening in your community, now you're aware. This man may have been someone who read. What was he able to read? He was able to read the books of Moses and the prophets. If you ever watched the movie Patton, Patton makes this statement. Before the German general comes. And the whole process is this. Patton said, Rama, I read your life. Rama, I read the geography of this area where we're going to battle. I have the high ground. And every battle that has been won in this area is because they got there first and got the high ground. And I have the high ground waiting on you. And he makes that statement. In the movie, Soldiers, We Were Soldiers, you hear the colonel saying, before he go into Vietnam, he says, I read you, sir. He read the general that he was going up against from the French who were there first. He did his research and he read. One of the things that it constantly tells you in history, if you want to know your enemy, read him. Study him if you want to know him. And maybe this centurion studied about the Jews before he got there. Maybe he studied what they valued. Maybe he studied some of the book of Moses. Maybe he read some of the prophets of old. And that's how maybe he's forming some of the questions in his mind and what's going on there. 
and he may have been like the Bereans. He searched it out to see if it was so because in Rome they had all these pagan gods. But among this Jewish group, they only had this one true God. And he may have read in Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I myself am he. There is no God beside me. See, he may have sung that little song that we sing. I searched all over. Remember them words? I searched high and low. And what? I found what? None like unto him. And he may have done that. He searched all over. He searched high and low. But he found none like him. None. And he read this scripture. And he says, there's none besides me. There's no one like me. I put to death and I bring to life. Oh, this God can do this. And my servant is dying. Is it possible that he can bring my servant back to life? Is it possible that he can heal my servant? Is it possible that he can intercede for my servant? I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded or I have allowed people to be sick or I have allowed people to be hurt. But I'm able to heal. I will heal and no one can deliver out of my hand. Nobody can stop me from doing what I'm going to do. Why? I am he. Who is he? I am God all by myself. You can look wherever you want to look. I am God. He may have read that. And he had to think about it. He had to ponder over it. And he heard maybe in Psalm 33, 9. For he spoke and it came to be. He spoke and he came to be. Remember, he had these books. These books were there. Those scrolls were there. Information was there. And it says, this God spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. He may have read Psalms 107, 19 and 20. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. Is he in trouble? His servant's in trouble. The one that he loves, the one that he cares for is in trouble. And he said, I'm going to cry out. I'm going to send for this Jesus. I'm going to ask for his help. Now catch this picture. Here's a Gentile, a Roman, a pagan, or a believer in the Roman God who is now calling upon a Jewish God to intercede on the behalf of his servant. What has to take place here? He has to humble himself. He has to humble himself. He has to disenfranchise himself of all that he once believed and now believed that this is the only God who can help and intercede for his servant. And it says, when you're in trouble, you cry out to the Lord. And he saved them from their what? Their diseases. He sent forth his word. Oh, Lord, I'm not worthy you come under my roof, but you just speak the word. You think he could have got that from here? 
You think he could have read this and said, all this individual has to do, if he's really God, if he's really from God, all he has to do is just speak the word. That's all. He just got to speak the word and my servant will be healed. He don't have to come to my, he just got to speak it. This man may have studied his so-called enemy and discovered they were not his enemy. He may have been reading and understood these were some special people. See, when people really study you and I, they ought to come away in a sense saying, we're a special people. We're a peculiar people. We're a different people. Somehow people should see us differently. They should hear us speak differently. They should understand we love differently. We care differently than the world. We're not out to defraud anybody. We're not out to cheat anybody. We're not out to deceive anybody. But we're honest. We're a people of integrity. We're a people of holiness. We're a people of truth. That he, they look at us and they say, oh, they're different. And he looked at the Jewish people. He studied them. And he's saying something different about these folks. Something different about these folks. They both have formed a different perception of each other. The Jewish elders who he asked to go and intercede for him. Now there's a reason why he asked. Remember, he's a centurion. He's an officer. He have a hundred men up under him. And I imagine there's times he's had to go into Jerusalem and knock some heads or in Galilee and bop some heads or he had to do some things that just wasn't quite pleasant to the Jews. And they knew who he was. There was no secret. And the whole process, he had a job of keeping order there for the Romans. He's a soldier. And therefore... Most Jews would see him as what? As an enemy. The thing that the story tells us is this, that Jesus was speaking to a crowd and then was leaving the crowd, but when you check verse 9, he also turns to the crowd of people and he makes a statement. So the crowd or a good group of people are still there with him as he's going to this Gentile's home. And he sends these Jewish individuals because what would it look like or how would it be perceived if he would go into that crowd? Would he disturb? Would he cause confusion? But he wanted to get his message to Jesus. And the way he chose to get his message there was simply by sending the Jewish elders. They went with the message, but they both perceived each other a little different. They saw him as somebody worthy and deserving. And they tell Jesus, he's worthy. He's deserving of this. 
Now, what makes it that you're worthy of salvation? What is it that makes it worthy that God shows you favor? What is it that you say that you deserve God to do this or that for you? What causes you to be able to say to God, you deserve this and deserve that, and he ought to do this for you and do that for you? And sometimes we bargain with God in our prayer. God, if you do this, we'll do this. They see him as worthy because of his actions. But he sees himself as unworthy. They see him worthy. He sees himself unworthy. And that is something that when you begin to study this and you look at yourself, you need to understand when a job evaluates you, what are they evaluating you on? Why do you deserve a raise? Why do you deserve a promotion? Why do you deserve this? Why do you deserve that? The daycare gave some of the employees a, a bonus. Some of them got a little bit upset because some of them got bonuses. But they got bonus because they went above what was expected of them. They did some excellent things throughout the year. They were never late. They were here. They really worked on the extra programs. They really worked in helping their kids to learn. And the other ones got a little bit upset because they didn't get anything. Well, step up! That's simple. Step up! And I think with Jesus, when he says of this man, he said he has great faith. Great faith. Imagine the apostles may have said, who is he talking to? Don't he know that's a Gentile? But because of the man's actions. And see, only thing people can really evaluate us on is our action and our appearance and how we present ourselves. That's where people evaluate you. Why? People only look at the outer. They don't look at the inner. We only look at the outer. And all of our evaluations of a person come from the outer appearance. Not from the inner. Because we can't see it. The people's precept of you is what they hear and experience of you. If your experience of people only leaves a bad taste, then you're not going to get into their life. You're not going to be able to say much to them. You're not going to be able to help them much because they perceive you as someone differently than what maybe you even say that you are. And that perception makes a world of difference. When you step into Dee's office, it's an office. It's a perception. When you see Dee come out, her dress speaks loudly of her. Then when you begin to interact with her, you know she's very much able to articulate her business of insurance. She knows that field. And you can feel comfortable with it. And you want people to be able to feel comfortable with you. 
Mark's a coach right now. He got one year with these young kids. He's told you they're not really comfortable with him. He's not comfortable with them. But he's trying to communicate with them. And it's hard to communicate with them. But he has to present himself as a coach. He has to present himself with knowledge and understanding. Even though people sometimes don't think that you have it. You have it. Because the kids out there think they know more than he does. But yet he got to stay at it. He got to stay at it. And he got to present himself at, at the games as a coach. And the whole process, how we present ourselves, is how people then respond to us. And this man presented himself in such a way that demanded the Jewish elders and the Jewish people in that area to respond to him with favor. And they're able to say to Jesus, he deserves it. He deserves it. The word, the word worthy or deserved. Why do a person deserve it? What they're saying. How people perceive you is how they respond to you. And the apostles are going to learn that lesson. How people see you. If they see you as fishermen, not as an apostle, that's all you're ever going to be as a fisherman. If they see you only as the tax collector, that's who you're going to be, just a tax collector. You'll never be my representative. You'll never be my apostle. You'll never be my disciple. You're only going to be what they perceive you to be. And they're learning that of this individual. Because the majority of the Jewish individuals saw this centurion as an enemy. But he changed their perception. He changed their perception. Why? When you look in that verse 5, it simply says this here. It says, because he loves our nation. What did he show different maybe than a lot of Roman soldiers? And this is something you can't deceive people on. It says, he loved us. He loves us. You know something about a child? I don't care how old they are. They know if you really love them and care about them. (laughs) It's something like a a sense that God gave them to know they're really cared for. They are really loved. And they just melt in your arms and they just feel secure. Why? Because they know that they're loved and cared for. And they said his actions, how he loved us, we're able to see it. And then the second thing that he does, and most historians come back and they say the same thing. He, they said, he built us a synagogue. He built us a synagogue. That's like the Jews today coming and building us a church. Or like, boy, Christians going and building a mosque. And the thing that he does, he builds them a synagogue where they can worship, they can study, they can pray. But this is what takes the cake of it. Most likely, he paid for it all out of his own pocket. He paid for it. How many of us would pull it out of our pockets? And pay for it. 
I can't think of the man from Lima, Ohio, getting older. Old Lions man down in Lima who invented the gas, plastic gas thing. Um, boy, but he built churches all over the world. His business, he learned how to take the silver back off of Kodak film. And that started his small business. And then it really boomed when he invented the plastic gas can. And he told the Lord at that time, I'll live on 100000 and what all my business makes, I'll give to you. And he lived on the 100000 and gave the millions to the Lord and did the work of the Lord with missions. Air, he bought airplanes. He bought Bibles. He built churches. He built seminaries and colleges overseas. He did it. How many of us would put an extra $10 out to pay for something of the Lord? One man built a church here in this district. He just reached in his pocket and pulled out $440,000 and just paid for the church. The thing is, when God has your heart and God has you, it's not about your money. Because what happened is simply this. This man built, not for favor, because I think this man's heart has somehow been captivated by God. By God. And you're going to see something that I've pondered and I've pondered and I've pondered and I've pondered here. Because it's so great about this individual. His action says he's worthy of what we're asking, Lord. And the Jewish elders saw him worthy and deserving. But how does the centurion see himself? And how do you see yourself? How do you look at yourself as a Christian? How do you evaluate yourself? How do you examine yourself? When people see you as great, learn this little lesson. Humble yourself. When people see you as somebody who is well off and wealthy or this or that or whatever, humble yourself. When people see you educated and that you can use these words and that word and you can talk about this philosophy and that teaching and and this humble yourself. Humble yourself. And I think this man does this when he talks about that he's not worthy. That he humbles himself. And then 1 Peter 5 It simply says, if you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God in due time, in God's time, what will he do? He'll lift you up if you'll just humble yourself. He'll exalt you. Don't worry about showing yourself off. He'll show you off. In verse 6 he says, I'm not deserving to have you come under my roof. I'm not deserving for you to come under my roof. And he makes that statement. And he says, so Jesus went with them. 
he was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. I don't deserve. What's wrong with my neighborhood? Have you ever brought people into your neighborhood and you're a little bit embarrassed of your neighborhood? You're a little bit embarrassed how the houses might be falling down, how many houses are bored up? Are you a little bit embarrassed because the cars didn't put the front yard all into mud and there's no grass? Are you a little bit embarrassed by what stands out on the corner and everything and the language that's going on? Are you a little bit embarrassed? And he says to this man, go tell Jesus, you don't need to come to my house. Have you ever been embarrassed of your house? Maybe we do need to cut the grass. Maybe we do need to paint the house. Maybe we do need to scrub and get some spick and span and clean up on the inside. Maybe some things need to happen. But then he brings this real note home. When he says, Jesus, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. Think on that for a moment. How many of you are even worthy to mention the name of Jesus? How many of you are worthy to go before his throne? How many of you, when you sing his praises, are worthy to do it? How many of us are even worthy to preach his word, the purity of his word, the truth of his word, the holiness of his word? How many of us are worthy of preaching it, declaring it, proclaiming it? And he said, I wasn't even worthy to come to you. Would you take a picture of how this man is seeing himself? That we might examine ourselves. And could you see the apostles, the privilege that they have of being there with Jesus? Praying with Jesus? And the question may be, what makes us worthy that he called us? What made us worthy that he chose me for this position? What makes me worthy that I can sit and be taught of him? What makes me worthy of that? And this man examines himself. And he has to have a high view and respect of who Jesus is to condescend himself to such a low position, knowing that Jesus is a Jew and he is a Roman, and the normal philosophy of the Roman was that they were superior to anybody, and yet he puts himself down here and he puts Jesus up here. Amazing. Examine this statement. Considered myself worthy, not worthy to come. In that verse 7, he simply says, That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. Just say the word. 
the, the centurion says, I know this about you, Jesus. And this is what he knew that even his apostles and disciples didn't understand at this point. If you just say the word, my servant will be healed. You don't have to come under my roof. You don't have to come into my neighborhood. You don't have to come into my house. You just speak the word. You just speak it. What he knew was this. The satyrian knew like himself. If he gave an order, he didn't have to be present for that order to be followed out. And he understood that about Jesus. You don't have to be present to see if the order is is followed out because of who you are. You're sovereign. You have the authority. There's no higher authority. And you have authority over life and death. You have authority over all diseases. All you have to do is speak it and my servant will be healed my servant will be healed if you speak it. Then in verse 9, Jesus makes this profound statement. And it is profound. He simply says, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Now, not often you find in Scripture where Jesus is amazed. There's only two or three other spots. But it says, Jesus was amazed at what he was hearing from this individual. He was amazed at how this person's faith had gathered. And he's walking by faith, not by sight. He's walking by what he understands, who Jesus is. He is there living by understanding what he has read maybe in the Old Testament and of the prophets and what he has heard. But there's something more that took place. What he heard and what he may have read, he just didn't leave it there. He pondered it. He searched it out. He desired more of it. He wanted the depths of it. Do you want more, Jesus? Do you really want more, or are you satisfied? Are you satisfied? Or do you want more? I'm going to tell on myself. See, Sister Brown been trying to keep all the sweets out the house. But in a box the other day, I found a little bit of German chocolate cake. (laughs) But I controlled myself. Because they were cut about an inch and a half by about two. And what I did, I took a knife and cut it in half. I remember what Miss Parkman told me. You can have it, just can't have as much. So I just cut me a little piece off. Got it out of there. 
ate it, cleaned up all the evidence before she got home, stuck it, stuck it back in the box, and, and then I told Mark, when you go over, you're going to see a little piece missed. I'm the one who cut that out, but you don't say nothing. See, so I, this is my own confession time, you see. But, but the whole process, just desiring, just wanting. Do you want more of Jesus? Do, have you tasted him and want more? For the psalm says, taste and see how good he is. Does he make your slaughter kind of work? Does he give you an appetite for himself? Does he cause you to be thirsty for himself? Is it that you can come and you can spend and you can read and you can think on Jesus all day long? And you can live on him? And he says, I have not found such great faith in all Israel. Now, what did he include? All Israel. Does that mean Moses? Does that mean Abraham? Does that mean John the Baptist? Does that mean Simon in the temple waiting who the Holy Spirit has spoken to? He said, I have not seen such great. And he emphasizes by using the word great faith. And guess what? And this is the part that hits the disciples and the apostles. This is not a homegrown Christian. This is not a homegrown Jewish boy. This is not somebody who was taught the five books of Moses. This is not somebody who was taught about Elijah. This is not somebody who was taught about the great prophets. This is a Gentile boy from Rome who grew up with all the pagans who knew all the pagan gods. And somehow, he calls for me. And he sees himself not even worthy to come to me and ask of me to heal his servant. And he tells me, I'm not worthy to come under his roof. And all of you think, Boy, I'm the Messiah, or I'm this, and I'm that, and that you're worthy of it. Yes, he's our Savior, but am I worthy of him being my Savior? Some of us have been homegrown. We've grown up around Christianity all our life. We've heard it all our life but we don't have the faith of this Roman boy. To believe that Jesus would just speak the word and that would be it. And he takes it to another depth. It's amazing. What's so amazing about this man? The gospel is not simple. When you simplify the gospel and you want to make it simple, simple, you bring God and everything about God down when everything about God is profound and holy and amazing and wonderful. He is up here, not down here. The church has kept such a low threshold because we want everybody in and everybody understanding it. And everybody this, that we keep it 
on a watered-down level. No. Good medicine comes in its full portion of strength. And he simply says, when we keep this simplicity, the church has walked away from its profoundness, its profundity. It walks away from how great this gospel really is. The Bible doesn't give us a choice between simplicity and profundity. It doesn't do it. It is both. It is simple enough for the babe to understand it. I don't have to make it simpler. The babe will understand it. This Roman boy understood what he was reading or what he was hearing. He understood it because the understanding doesn't come from the fleshly mind. It comes from the Holy Spirit ministering to that individual. It is both simple but everyone can understand it, even a Gentile. Yet so profound that none can fully know its depths. And therefore we have in Second Peter 3.18, he uses the thing that you are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And what it is saying is simply this here. You just keep on growing. Keep on growing. Keep on growing. You never can outgrow the scriptures. You can never outgrow God. You can never outgrow the Holy Spirit. You are constantly growing, growing, growing in the Lord. A couple of weeks ago, I was asking myself this question. And it comes from Thinking of the Jehovah Witnesses come from thinking of the Mormon philosophy. It comes from thinking of different philosophies and so forth. And I ask myself this question. Can God duplicate himself? Can God make himself over? He can't. The little God God can't make a little God or he's made a what? An idol. That's why scripture says that Jesus was of the same substance of God himself. Why? He's God. God cannot reduplicate himself. That's one of the things he cannot do. It's like taking a picture that first picture, and then taking a copy of that picture and another picture of that picture, you begin to lose something. It begins to fade. It's not the original. It's not the same thing. But if you want the original, there's only one. And again, the song says, I searched all over, and there's none like you, because God cannot create another like himself. Not even the angels, not even us. He can't do it. It's him and him alone. It's him and him alone. 
And you look at John 16. Let's go to it real quick and we'll close out here for just now. He says, boy, I want you to learn of me. I want you to know about me. Pick up in verse 12, he says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into what? All truth. He's going to lead you into all truth. He's going to give you more than what's written on these pages. If you really walk with the Spirit, so when you read a Tozer, you're reading something more sometimes than Scripture. And sometimes people call him a mystic. Why is he a mystic? Because he's thinking sometimes a little bit outside the Scripture. And what he says is profound. It's profound. The issue is that he is thinking about his God. And when you sit and ponder God and think on God, let the Holy Spirit minister to your mind and to your heart. And all you can do is break out in tears. All you can do is break out in joy. All you can do is just break out over the marvelous, wonderful God in whom we serve. You see him differently. You see him differently when you ponder on him, when you think of him. Jesus said of the centurion, he has understood more than those who have heard and were given the scriptures that he could understand and believe such truths. And here you are, You grew up on the scriptures. Here you are. You know all the names of the prophets. Here you are. You have the books of Moses. And this man says, all I have to do, because he understands I am the sovereign God, all you have to do, even from a distance, is speak the word. And my servant will be healed. What has God spoken into your heart that he's brought to pass? What is it that God is speaking to you that you believe he'll do it because he's God? See, if God's not speaking to you, if God's not sharing with you, then you need to ask why. Because God wants to speak to his children. Every father in his heart of heart want to speak to his children. And my heavenly father wants to speak into the lives of his children that they might have great faith Concerning him. Father, we thank you for what we can learn from this centurion. And we thank you, Lord, that the disciples and the apostles were there to learn that, Lord, you were able to minister to the Gentiles, even though you said to them, first go unto the Jews and not. And yet, Lord, here you are ministering 
to a Gentile. And here is a Gentile believing in you before Peter, before Paul were ever commissioned. Here is a Gentile having faith in you and understanding how great you really are. Help us to understand, Lord, with our little bit of knowledge, with our little bit of studying, with our little bit of what we have, there is so much more yet to grasp of you. And may we desire to be in Bible study. May we desire to talk about you and question the things. May we desire to sharpen each other. May we desire to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And Lord, we'll give you praise and we'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.